Before we begin, imagine this scene. You are in London. It's 1953, though. It's the day of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, actually. But you are down in the underground at Baker Street Station. It's late, just about time for the last train. There's hardly anyone around. At the far end of the platform, two men show up. They seem to be arguing about something. They sound drunk. You can hear just about enough to pick out Irish accents. Suddenly, one of the men, the smaller one of the two, seems to lose it completely. Just as the train is about to burst out of the tunnel, he steps up and pushes the other one right in front of the train. You're listening to The Nobody Zone, a podcast series in six parts. Brought to you by RTE's Documentary on One in Ireland and Third Year Productions in Denmark. My name's Tim Hinman. That scene we just heard, that was a murder. And the man doing the pushing, he confessed to that murder. He confessed repeatedly to the police under questioning in London. But even if he did, he was never charged or prosecuted for it. This murder on Baker Street Station was only the first of many killings. But he would never be charged or prosecuted for the vast majority of these crimes either. Despite having given long and detailed descriptions of brutal killings to the police. Descriptions that included names, times, places, that all more or less matched up to the untimely deaths of people all over London. Over a period of decades, they still chose not to charge him. So why? What happened? How could this man have gotten away with murder? In order to tell this bizarre story. We have to rewind history. We have to chase up a few very cold and long dead leads. We'll have to separate quite a bit of truth from fiction. We have to talk to some policemen. And we'll even have to dig up a man's driveway somewhere in the Midlands of Ireland at some point. But all that comes later. Like all good stories, especially true stories, we have to start somewhere. So I suggest we jump in time again. This time to the day the man on the Baker Street tube claimed his final victim. A full 30 years later than that night down in the underground. We're still in London, this time on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. The date is August the 3rd and the year is now 1983. Two men 
We're walking along one of the tarmac paths that dissect Clapham Common in southwest London. They're headed towards the old bandstand near the middle of the wide, grassy common, which is actually mostly empty today. It's not a very warm day for August. It's quiet. Both men look a bit chumpy. They argue from time to time. They're not friends. They look more like associates. The main thing is, whatever they're doing, no one's really paying them any attention at all. Not yet. Both these men are nobodies. They're homeless. Alcoholics. Drunks. Dossers is what they'd call themselves. Winos, tramps or something worse is what passers-by might have called them back then, in 1983. Homeless, invisible men. A regular feature on the streets here in London in the 1980s. A regular feature on the streets of London as long as anyone can remember. Today, they're looking to steal some money, if they can. They need to buy some drink. These two will drink anything. Usually cider, British sherry, cheap wine, cheap spirits. Lately, they've been drinking a lot of methylated spirits mixed with red wine. That's a drink they call Red Biddy. They haven't had a drink yet today because they're out of supplies and they are in desperate need of more. They spot an old man. He's a pensioner. His name is Walter Bell. Walter Bell's not a tramp. He's a somebody, you might say. He lives around here. They spot him on a park bench near the bandstand. He's old and he's an obvious an easy mark for these two. So the two brush up beside him and then they grab his arms. They threaten him a bit and they tell him to give them all his money. But Walter Bell hasn't got any money. So they take his watch and they take his wedding ring and they stuff them deep into dirty overcoat pockets and run off quickly. The two men disappear in the direction of Clapham High Street, not far away. Bell manages to make his way to a phone box and he calls the police. Police emergency. Now it doesn't take long for these two to get spotted by a passing policeman. He sees them standing outside an off-license and he arrests them on the spot. The pair don't bother to resist arrest. They know that a night or two in the cells is just part of the game here. And that's it. Police van shows up soon after and takes them both down to the police station at Clapham. Both the men in the back of the van are Irish. One of them is called Paul McManus. Now you can forget that name right away. Like so many of the people he knew in his lifetime probably did too. Paul McManus was a nobody then, and he remained a nobody. Nobody, as far as I know, ever found out what happened to him after this story's over. The other man, though, is called Kieran Patrick Kelly. Locally, he's known around here as Nosy Kelly, sometimes Mad Ken. He's a known dosser, and he often sleeps around the churchyard on Clapham Common. You're going to hear a lot more about Kieran Patrick Kelly. Because Kelly's the man who was down on Baker Street Tube that night, pushing the other man in front of a train. But we'll get to that in a bit. 
It's time to meet someone who was actually there the day McManus and Kelly were brought in. This is retired Detective Superintendent Ian Brown. My name's Ian Brown. I retired as a Detective Superintendent from the Metropolitan Police in 1990. I was the Detective Inspector at Clapham Police Station. On the day Kelly and McManus were brought into Clapham Nick, the then Detective Inspector Brown didn't really need to know all that much about it. They'd been arrested for a pretty minor theft, even if it did involve threats and violence. These two suspects obviously had so much previous form that you could almost see the desk sergeant's eyes rolling with boredom as he has to process them. The most likely result of this arrest would be a few weeks behind bars for them, or just an acquittal due to lack of evidence as usual. In any case, these men were in and out of London jail so often, they might as well have had revolving doors on them. Now, to add to the station sergeant's bad day of pointless paperwork, these two have been drinking and sleeping rough for weeks. They hadn't washed for weeks. He knew from experience that the cells always had to be cleaned out after people like this because of the stink. So... Previously, that night, the night before, a guy called Boyd, another old tramp, big beard, smelly old tramp, was arrested and put into the cells. When Kelly and the other guy came in, the station sergeant decided that he put all three into the same cell because otherwise it was contaminating all the cells. Boyd was still sleeping off the drink that had gotten him arrested for drunken disorderly conduct just the day before. He's snoring away on the hard cell bench. The door is slammed shut and another day is over. Just as the then detective inspector, Ian Brown, was about to get his coat on and go home for the evening, something happened. About five o'clock I was going home when somebody shouted, Governor, quick, down the cells. And I went down to the cells and I found Boyd lying on his back, being given the kiss of life by the station sergeant. Round his neck was a pair of socks. They'd been tied together and he'd been strangled, garroted. Boyd was already dead, beyond saving. Garrotted, as Brown puts it, with a pair of dirty tramp socks around his throat. Inside a police station cell. So we have Boyd dead with a pair of socks around his neck. Inside the cell are two other men, Kelly and McManus. The other prisoner was a guy called Paul McManus, another alcoholic tramp. He was banging on the door saying, let me out. McManus was shouting and screaming to be let out. Kelly definitely wasn't. And sitting in the corner, cross-legged, with no socks on, was Kelly. So this was Ian Brown's first ever meeting with a sockless Kieran Kelly sitting calmly in the corner of a police cell, with his legs crossed. We now have a murder in the police cells, and it has to be investigated, so... 
D.I. Brown was already an experienced police detective in 1983. This case, horrible as it was, was probably the most obvious open and shut murder case he'd ever come across. So, using my detective powers, I worked out that the socks round Boy's neck were most probably Kelly's. And there we have Kelly committing a murder. Needless to say, D.I. Brown was rather late home for dinner that night. We take Kelly upstairs and start to interview him. During the first interview, Kelly confesses to the murder. No reason not to. The interviews go according to plan. There's nothing untoward. Kelly's got no choice but to admit what he did. And we put Kelly back down the cells for the night. As far as he can work out at this point, Kieran Kelly killed Boyd, a man he didn't even know, just because he was snoring too much. Cut to the following morning. Kelly is sitting alone back in the interview at Clapham Police Station, waiting to be interviewed again. It's time to point out that we're in a police world, as it was in 1983. This is a world before digital footprints. Camera surveillance was pretty rare. Mobile phones didn't really exist unless you were a city banker with a phone the size of a house brick. Digital databases were still a pretty new thing in 1983. They took time to use, and you couldn't just use them anywhere. There certainly wasn't a computer on every policeman's desk back then. More likely, a typewriter. So we're still in the time of paperwork, typed up police reports and carbon paper copies. Getting records still required a phone call and someone to pull a physical file off a shelf somewhere. One thing they did have back then was tape recorders. That's Ian Brown. You can just about make out his voice on the tape. The audio will get better. I broke seal number HGG702 of a new tape which was placed under a recorder now secreted on the desk. This is an actual interview tape made by the then Detective Inspector Brown while interviewing Kieran Kelly. The time is now 3.56 and the machine will remain. It's a very rare and difficult thing to get hold of, I can assure you. It took us over three years to get hold of this tape and to get permission to use it. You'll find out how and why they finally gave us permission later in the series, I promise. For now, all you need to know is that Ian Brown is present along with another policeman, Brown's then superior officer, Detective Chief Inspector Ray Adams. And they're getting ready. Because, as you can maybe make out in the background, in just a moment, Kieran Kelly himself is about to make his entrance. Can I have a load, please? Of course you can. How are you, Kelly? Do you want a cup of tea? Cup of tea, cup of coffee. Cup of tea, please. Cup of tea. One sugar. One sugar, please. What is it now? Sit, Sit down, Kelly. I'll go through it. I'll stop the tape here. 
while Ian Brown makes sure Kelly gets his cup of tea. This tape was made in August 1983. It's the only surviving cassette tape made during a series of interviews made by Brown after Kieran Kelly killed Boyd down in the cells. The date on this tape is August 17. That's actually two whole weeks after Boyd's killing. Two whole weeks in which Brown has gotten to know Kelly pretty well. It's probably why Brown knows how many sugars he wants in his tea. As you're about to find out, there's a very good reason why Brown had to conduct so many interviews with Kelly, why it took two whole weeks, after what looked like being such a simple open and shut case. There'll be a lot more of this tape coming up. Meanwhile, let's get back to the morning after the killing of Boyd in the police cell. The following day, we start to interview Kelly again. And we'd recovered the watch from, that the, they'd stolen from the old man. But suddenly, Kelly starts bouncing up and down like a boxer and says, I fooled you, I fooled you, and stuck his tongue out, and over his tongue was the ring. Having just killed a man and confessed to it the night before, Kieran Kelly now seems more interested in showing off the ring he stole from Walter Bell on Clapham Common than anything else. Ian Brown is a six-foot-two tall policeman with years of interview experience under his belt and he's not easily phased by anyone. In front of him is Kelly, a short man. He's got narrow-set eyes and a characteristically large nose. Hence the nickname, Nosy Kelly. But he's acting really strangely in the interview room. He was small, skinny, bag of bones. Um, but a live wire. It, everything about him was moving. He was twitching and dumped. I mean, he would stand up in the middle of an interview and start shadowboxing uh, and then sit down again uh, and carry on with the interview. He would uh, run round the room, he'd dance, he'd do all sorts of weird things. While Kelly does weird things, Brown can glance through the paperwork he's got in front of him. I mentioned just before that back in 1983, pulling records for criminals was a bit of a slow and manual process. So while Brown's trying to make sense of Kelly in the interview room, he only has a few bits of information about Kelly's past record in front of him. By no means the full description. But still, it's just enough for him to apply a bit of good old-fashioned police interview pressure. Now, having read Kelly's background... He had recently been acquitted at the Old Bailey for the murder of another tramp. Brown can see that in 1977, Kelly was arrested and later tried at the Old Bailey for the murder of a man called Ed Toll in a churchyard in Kennington, South London. It was alleged that Kelly had found Ed Toll, who was another tramp, sleeping on a gravestone in the churchyard that Kelly liked to sleep on himself. So he attacked him and tried to strangle him with his belt. There were two witnesses that saw it happen. One of them had said to Kelly something like, I think you might have killed him, to which Kelly responded by going back to the man, strangling him all over again, and then saying, Well, I have now. He was acquitted 
after the jury found there was little or no evidence to convict him. And the witnesses? Well, they weren't exactly top-notch legal material for the prosecution. The only evidence against him were two tramps, who were both still tramps, still alcoholics, still on meths, and their evidence was really just not credible. So as a result of that, Kelly walked out and was found not guilty. So I'm now interviewing Kelly, and knowing that in the background, I thought, I wonder if he'll confess to it now. So right out of the blue, I just said to him, now tell me about all the other murders then, Kelly. And he said, which one are you talking about? And I said, well, you just tell me. He said, you're talking about Fisher, aren't you? And I said, yep, that's the one, not having a clue what he was talking about. But I nodded to the sergeant who jumped up and went out the room to find out who the hell Fisher was. It took 30 minutes. A phone call to headquarters, a bit more searching, and another case file is pulled off the shelf. The sergeant gets the main details over the phone, jots them down on a bit of paper, and hurries back to Brown in the interview room. And he came back with a scribbled piece of paper telling me that a guy called Fisher had been murdered in the back of Clapham Church on Clapham Common. Another murder, unsolved. This time a man called Hector Fisher, stabbed to death behind the church on Clapham Common very close to where Kelly was arrested the previous afternoon. So I started to question him about that. And he said, I was too clever for you. You didn't realise it was a robbery. I said, no, you're far too clever, Kelly. He said, uh, I covered it up. And I said, and how did you do that? He said, uh, well, he had a lot of money in his pocket, but I left 40 pounds in his pocket so you wouldn't know he'd been robbed. Fisher. Would you tell me again how you did him? I did my wallop. And I, don't, I, I cut him. I, I don't think there were stamps. I'm not sure. But I cut his bollocks. How many times did you stab him? I don't know. I, was, um, I had a good drink on me. Kelly said he was drunk and gave Fisher a good wallop. He hit him over the head with a bottle and cut him in the bollocks. So we now have Kelly admitting one extra murder. So I said, OK, Kelly, when did it all start? And he said, in 1953, the year of the coronation. When did it all start? Well, Kelly's saying that it started that night down in Baker Street, Tube. Kelly and a friend had travelled over to London from Dublin in 1953 to be around the celebrations during the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. A chance for some hard drinking and a bit of petty theft. Kelly had already had some minor criminal form in Ireland at the time. Small offences for theft and breaking and entering mostly. Kelly's friend was a man called Christy Smith. Christy Smith. Yeah. That was the one that started, yeah. 
He said, and we were down the tube and we'd had a drink and he said something to me and I got cross and threw him under a train in Baker Street Underground Station in 1953. Kelly says that Christy Smith was his first murder victim, that he pushed him in front of that tube train all the way back in 1953. That's 30 years before this. And then he says, that was the one that started it all. That means Kelly has been a killer on the run for 30 years. And then... And then Kelly started to ramble. And it was as much as we could do to keep up with what he was saying. So I had to keep up because Kelly's got a lot more to tell. An awful lot more. He started to confess to murders. You put yourself in my shoes, right? Yeah. You brought Kelly Geyser, right? And years go by, and you do another few, right? And you're not captured. Right? Are you with me now? And then it's on, on, the, on the top shelf. It's on your mind. It's playing on your mind at times. Right? And then you're captured for a while. So what do you do? Think. What do you do then? If you captured bang to rights, you yeah, mean? Bang to rights. What do you do? Will you tell me? I'm, I'm, I say you, I, you put yourself in white. You tell the truth is what you're saying. That's it. You then tell the truth about everything. If you've killed someone years ago and you don't get captured, and then you go on and kill another few, it plays on your mind, says Kelly. What you're telling us then, it's been playing on your mind for some time. You've caught banker rights aboard, you know there's no way out of that. You then decide to come clean and tell us all the truth. Yeah. And that is right, is it? That's right. And that's what I've done. So what do you do if you get caught for one bang to rights? You tell the truth is what you do, as the chief detective inspector says. He talked about murders all over London. So many of them that Brown and Adams have trouble keeping up. He told them when and how he killed his victims. He told them who his victims were. One was called Scotch Jack. Scotch Jack. Kelly said he'd beaten him to death, surprising him from behind and hitting him over the head with an iron bar, leaving him to die in a basement stairwell. Scotch Jack was found in the basement of a house in Clapham with multiple head wounds. Another, Mickey Dunn. He was poisoned to death with a cocktail of surgical spirits and several packets of headache pills stolen from the chemist, mixed up with orange squash and wine. Did, did you know that the stuff that you were giving Mickey Dunn was going to kill him then? Or did you hope it would? You hoped that it would. Yeah, I hoped it would. I killed him slowly. Didn't kill him there and then. He killed Mickey Dunn slowly. Kelly said he murdered his victims in various ways. Beating, stabbing, strangling, poisoning. Always savage, brutal and violent. Often, but not always when he was drunk. But always on purpose, never by accident. He really wanted to kill these people. Kelly had got upset with a tramp and he had told us that he'd poured a bottle of white spirit down him. Um, he said he died the next day. 
How much did you give him? One large bottle of surgical spirits. A large bottle of surgical spirit. You're showing there, you're pulling down on his chin to open his mouth. I didn't mouth. grab him, I didn't scrape him, I grabbed him. No. And I got it in him, and he was bringing back up. So what you're showing me there is you, you've opened his... Yeah. ...pushed his chin over, down, and down, opened it, yeah. pushing it away from you. He murdered a man called Soapy Joe by burning him to death. You said you said one had burned to death somewhere, didn't you? Or somebody was burnt in a, in a skipper? Remember the ones Clapham Common? <laughs> Clapham Common? Remember them going up the cunts? Yeah. He pushed another man in front of a tube train, this time at Kennington Underground Station. That's the man I done, but I didn't know who he was. Most of his killings take place in South London on stops up and down the Northern Underground Line. He told us about one down in Ballum. What do you want me to tell you? Well, tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. I'm telling you the truth. You killed him? Yeah. You killed Patsy Walters? Yeah. There were numerous other murders. I'm sure that was me. Moving on in Coronation Building? Yeah. You told us about that one because yeah. you want to clean the books? No, not clean the books. What then? No cleaning the books. He's not at all interested in cleaning the books, as he says for other unconnected, unsolved murders. He's making sure he lays claims to crimes that are his and his alone. I'm not cleaning any books by somebody else's. No, no, you're cleaning your own books. Oh, yeah. That's all we mean. Oh, yeah. So you did I the one in... Like that. No, 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 you did the one in Coronation Building. Yeah. Is that the absolute truth? It's true, yeah. Kelly clearly has a lot to get off his chest. A lot of books to clean. Can I have one of them cigarettes, please? Yes. Oh, wait, no. No, you don't. Now, listen, Kelly. Right, no, listen, now, that's it. Will you just... Uh, now, you see, I've got I've got you up in. I've got you grinning. That's You know you've made a cock-up. Yeah, he's grinning. Kelly. He's grinning in the morning when I go to the court. I'll be grinning in the morning when I get to court, he says. Kelly actually seems to be enjoying this. He's loving the fact that the cops had no idea how much he'd done. He seems to be relishing his chance to finally tell them how much cleverer than them he is. Just sit down and have a, have a quick count-up in your own mind about the ones you think you have killed, about the ones you think you might have killed, and how many you're sure you're killed. He wants to confess to every murder he ever committed. Name them for me, the ones that you definitely Christy killed. Smith. Christy Smith. Yeah, Del Conten in... Um... The derelict. In, in the house, Fisher. Yeah. Right, um... You can understand why it took two whole weeks for Ian Brown just to get all these confessions straight, to get them out of Kelly, Brown, so they made sense. Mickey Dunn. Mickey Dunn, Is there anything else you want to tell us you've done? In the end, Kelly put his hands up to maybe 13, 14, 15 murders. 13, 14 or 15 murders. That's what you call a serial killer. At that time, Kelly was definitely one of the most prolific murderers uh, in British history, uh, and certainly in Irish history. Serial killers in the UK and Ireland rarely get to numbers that high. Jack the Ripper is very famous. He only claimed five or six victims. Dennis Nielsen was around at the time of Kelly. He claimed 12 to 15. The Moors murderers, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, they claimed five victims. Fred and Rosemary West, 12 or 13. The Yorkshire Ripper, maybe 13. 
With 15 victims, Kelly should have been right on top of that list, especially in the 1980s. But he's not on anybody's list. Apart from a few lines here and there on the inner pages of the newspapers, Kelly just fades from view. There's certainly no mention of 13, 14 or 15 victims. People. Murdered, then forgotten, like they never existed. So why? Why did nobody ever hear about Kieran Patrick Kelly back then? Well, there are reasons why. They're just pretty bizarre reasons. To find out what they are, you'll have to listen to the next episode of The Nobody Zone. Take my advice Before crossing the ocean You'd better think twice Cause you can't live without love Without love alone The proof's round the west end And nobody's home But the summer is fine But the winter's a fridge Wrapped up in old cardboard And the chair the crossbow The Nobody Zone is written and narrated by Tim Hinman. Storyline and production is by Tim Hinman and Christian Mulson. Original idea, research and recordings are by Robert Mulhern, Ronan Kelly and Liam O'Brien, with production assistance from Sarah Blake, Donal O'Hurley, Tim Desmond, Nicolene Greer and Michael Lawless. If you wish to join the social media conversation around this podcast, please use hashtag the nobody zone or visit rte.ie forward slash the nobody zone. And if you'd like to comment or share any information you might have on this story, we'd love to hear from you. Email us documentaries at rte.ie. Original music for the series is by Tim Hinman. The title music is the song Missing You, written by Jimmy McCarthy and performed by Christy Moore. Graphics, marketing and distribution by John Kilkenny, Laura Beatty, Amy O'Driscoll, Nigel Wheatley and Frederick Neilbo. Illustrations by Alex Williamson. Special thanks to the British Transport Police. The Nobody Zone is a collaboration between RTE's Documentary on One in Ireland and Third Year Productions in Denmark. Thanks for listening. <laughs>